This is Top Floor, episode 32. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 32. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Irrevoke fell in love with hospitality 20 years ago. As a Belarusian immigrant, her first job was as a hotel housekeeper. She cycled through multiple positions and operations before finding her home in revenue management. Ira moved on to found a tech startup, then worked for several more after her successful exit. She has consulted with clients and taught university students, as well as writing her first book, Revenue Management Made Easy. Ira has just released her second book, Hospitality 2.0, about what she terms a digital revolution in the hotel industry. The book is mostly about technology, but she covers education, forecasting methodology, alternative accommodations, profit versus top line, data lakes, and cobotics, among other things. Today, we are going to talk about how to market massive technological and ideological change to a relatively conservative industry. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning marketing questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question comes to us from Ling. She says, I want to write a book, but I don't know how to get people to buy it. What do you suggest? Amazon, baby. Um, honestly, I have been self-publishing. Well, I have been. I have two books now. A lot of books, definitely. Two is a, lot, is a big number. Amazon does it all for you, really. Um, when it comes to the hospitality industry, it's a very niche area because there's just not a lot of publications and really any topic. So anything sells, really. And again, I didn't write it for the money, of course. I wrote it for the education and raising awareness but in our world, as long as it's on Amazon and available all over the world, it just sells. But other than that, it's all about marketing. And you probably know it better than anyone else. Um, there are a lot of wonderful pr- platforms that you can use to market and promote your publication. And depending on the area of expertise and the niche that you're writing and whether it's B2B versus B2C, you just select the platform that is going to work better. If it's a B2B type of publication, then you use LinkedIn and you use professional networks and um, different platforms that are in the industry. If it's a B2C, then you can use social media and PPC campaigns on Google and Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat. And that all depends on who your audience is, of course. I think one of the things that you did really well, Ira, is you built a community and a body of work of thought leadership before this book came out. And so you had already sort of started testing the water 
on some of the concepts that you present and some of your thoughts about what you were writing about. So people were expecting to hear more from you on this subject. So then when the book came out, they're like, yes, I can't wait. I've read some of her articles and you know, it's time. So for Ling, I would say, you know, establishing yourself as an authority and a thought leader in the subject matter that you're writing about is a good way to get started. And also to test your ideas, to market test your ideas, you know, poke holes in them or have your audience poke holes in them and make sure that they don't come up with an idea that completely changes your mind. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Uh, and what I would do, actually, I would start from writing articles, short pieces. And this is essentially how my first book was born. I wrote it in two weeks, wow. 100 pages in two weeks, because what I did, essentially, I just gathered everything I had published before in little pieces, and I put it all together and it became a book and I published it. So start slowly, test your writing skills, test your knowledge, test your ideas in the market, and then just put it all together and publish a book, but it's it's really a great way. Publishing a book is a great way to establish yourself, definitely the thought leader in any market, in any industry. It also changes a lot in your life. It changes the way people look at you. It changes the way people talk to you. It changes the way you perceive yourself. If you're a best-selling author, it feels great. <laughs> That is wonderful advice. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. How did you go from housekeeper to revenue manager? Within about a year, actually, that happened. Mm, two years. It was a very interesting story. Uh, housekeeping was my first job in this country. And I'm eternally grateful uh, for this opportunity to... Uh, realize my potential in this country. And I'm grateful to the country and to the hospitality industry for becoming my, my family, essentially, and allowing me to grow as an individual, as a professional. I just never sit still. I like to evolve. And I, I, will, I will always continue growing. So this is how it happened. I started with one thing that I moved on to front desk and I changed various, uh, tried very different roles on the uh, property level in the operations, sales, marketing, um, graveyard was probably the most interesting one, the <laughs> night shift. Say this no is more. Where, <laughs> this is where I learned the most. Honestly, now from the perspective of interacting with drunk guests, that was very entertaining. <laughs> but from the also from the perspective of learning a lot about how you operate a property. Because you look at all the reports that different stakeholders um, uh, are ne in need and what they look at and all how these numbers intercorrelate and relate to each other. A lot of things just is like becomes like this big puzzle just kind of all comes into place and you start understanding how to run a property if you if you try a night audit shift actually. And after that, um, I just kind of naturally evolved into a revenue management role because uh, I was working at a property and a, a general manager quit. She was the one watching the, the rates um, and doing the um, dynamic pricing at our property. I just noticed that it wasn't being done. And I offered the owners, I said, can I try? I'm kind of a numbers person and I'm, I'm a geek, a, a nerd from since I remember myself since I was little. I tried and within two weeks, we start seeing the results. Like literally the ref bar grew like crazy. Uh, half a year later, they gave me another property to manage, revenue manage. Half a year later, they gave me another property. Then I started consulting. Then I started writing and I started building my own kind of um, 
principles in the revenue management and uh, developed a, a new new index of profit maximization. And then I built a software and really um, got myself very deep into the revenue management discipline. So you've been a practitioner, a tech developer, and now a professor, a teacher. If you could only do one of those roles for the rest of your life, what would you choose? I already know the answer, or I have a guess. Uh, I love that question. The answer is I don't. I don't think that's what you would guess, but I can't do just one. That's I exactly what can. I guess. That you oh, really? Great. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you know sure. me well. After reading my book, you know me well. <laughs> I just can't do one. I, I just get bored, and but. I would say that education, teaching is my favorite, definitely right now. And I think that's something that's going to, uh, I'm going to have in my life for many years ahead, regardless of what else I do and uh, what other mischief I get myself into. I think I will continue teaching in one way or another, either San Diego State or just, you know, in any other capacity. I'm thinking about developing an online educational course on hospitality technology and revenue management and many other things. And um, I, I love it, but I'm just a diverse person. I get bored easily. I need to find more things to do. Your book, Hospitality 2.0, covers such a broad range of challenges, disruptions, tech innovations, other potential solutions all sort of centered around the way hotels generate, manage, and measure revenue. We're going to get into the weeds of this, but before we do, I'm curious about what the one key idea is. So if a reader or a listener today takes nothing else away from Hospitality 2.0, what's the one big idea that you want to communicate? Quick answer would be the one idea is that technology is a friend, not a foe, and AI is our BFF. <laughs> but I would also like to comment on the uh, what you mentioned, that the book outlines concepts from very different aspects of the discipline and then touches on many different subjects and, and challenges and the opportunities from different angles, right? I think what I've seen in the industry for many, many years that we are... Uh, working in silos, just like hospitality organizations, different departments are working in silos. The industry has been working in silos. And uh, there are different aspects of it, like education or technology or brands or independents or, you know, nonprofit organizations. They all try to solve these problems in their own, own little, re not little, in their own, own realm. But instead, what we should do and what I have attempted to do in my book, to bring it all together and to have a comprehensive study on what the industry is going through from all of these different perspectives, to understand how we all together can bring it up to a whole new level and to make it a modern industry, a successful industry that attracts talent, uh, attracts people who don't want to leave the industry, who are passionate about developing it and making it a successful modern industry of the 21st century. One of the overarching themes that I took away is that property revenue and channel management technology is mostly out of date right now. It's premise-based rather than cloud-based and therefore not as effective as it could be in helping hotels achieve greatness, as it were. 
no one listening to the show would argue that the hotel industry is woefully slow at tech adoption, innovation, etc. And this is due in large part, I think, to the competing priorities of the sort of big three stakeholders, owners, management companies, brands. All of these groups, all three, are in fundamentally different businesses. So I'm trying to figure out how you make the case that developing new tech benefits all three. That's a very loaded question. It's, <laughs> Is probably, it? going to, it's probably going to be a loaded answer. I apologize in advance and I'll try to concentrate to answer that one. First of all, if you take, for example, the U.S. region, we have about 70%, based on the recent STR data, we have about 70% of our properties um, that are branded. The remaining 30% are not. So we don't have that the same three-legged stool situation in that remaining 30% portion. If you take Europe, European market, actually it's reversed. It's 30% of branded, 70% uh, of independent or somewhere along those lines. If you take the whole world, it's about 50-50 overall. So uh, to kind of for context here, not everyone in this situation when we have the three-legged stool, when three different stakeholders have conflict and interest. For many hoteliers that are independent, there are many wonderful solutions exist that allow them to be modern and adopt technology and be efficient and be effective. That's and a this good is point. exactly why this is exactly why we have the most innovations are happening in the independent space. Because these guys are not limited by the old technology that, unfortunately, brands are dictating. Many brands, not all, have to kind of be politically correct here. Uh, many brands do that have old technology and dictate old PM systems and dictate uh, these integrations that can only work with these old the, the old PMS and CRS. And they can't offer these integrations with other modern players from the non-PMS categories, from like the revenue management space, the CRM and whatnot. What a wonderful coincidence. Today's episode is sponsored by Zucchetti Group, a company that our guest, Ira Vogue, mentions in her book, Hospitality 2.0. In North America, Zucchetti offers a fully integrated suite of tools for independent hotels and groups, including vertical booking and all-in-one reservation solution with booking engine, channel manager, and GDS connectivity, and logical solution, a comprehensive property management system. To learn more and grab the new white paper, Mythbusters COVID Recovery Edition, Visit ZucchettiNorthAmerica.com forward slash Mythbusters or click the link in the show notes from today's episode. Now back to the show. So again, not everyone in that difficult situation when they are limited by the brand, uh, brand tech stack. If we are talking about the situation with the, you know, the three-legged stool, which again in our in our country it's about seventy percent of hotels that are in that situation, there is still a light at the end of the tunnel, and there are a few options that these guys have. One option is do like what Senesta did, pull out your properties and make an independent brand. You know, hundred and two hundred and three hundred properties. If you're not satisfied with what the brand is offering you, make your own brand. Be Citizen M or you know, be Senesta. Uh, build your own tech stack. 
be modern or assemble your tech stack from the modern solutions that exist and don't be limited by the brand. Or if you want to stick with the flag, first of all, what we need to do is we need to ensure that these brands, large companies uh, that are still going to continue being powerful, they're not going anywhere. They need to upgrade their tax tag. They have no other options. They need to do it because if they don't, they're going to be disrupted. They're going to die because there's so many, so much more, so many more opportunities in the independent space and people see it. People see the technology is different. So an owner might say, look, you're making us use this dinosaur. We know that these other options exist. So either fix your dinosaur or we're out of here. Is that what you mean? Yep. Absolutely. Got yeah, it. that's exactly what I mean. And we see examples when, yeah, uh, hotels leave their brands because of the technology limitations, because they understand that they can't make money um, and the brands don't are not necessarily interested in ownership groups being profitable because of the conflict of interest, because brands make their money on the top line room revenue. Uh, their royalty fees and their, uh, you know, their members, the royalty members. Uh, it's a whole different uh, target as opposed to hotels uh, reaching operating efficiencies and being profitable. Brands don't care about that. Uh, hotel management companies don't care about that either. It's just a situation that we're in that also affects these low technology adoption rates because these different stakeholders are involved in the decision making when a property is signed up or is considering signing up for a new tech vendor. It's really hard to reach the agreement between the three players when a tech vendor is selling their solution to them. So an example question that I want to ask, this is sort of from an ownership perspective. I'm Say I own a hotel, my underwriting tells me that I'm going to sell it in 7 years. So it's a 7-year hold. And... All of a sudden, there's a three-year rollout of new technology that I have to pay for, but it's happening in the middle of my hold period, right? So what's in it for me as the owner? How will participating in this add value to my asset in time for me to recoup it, I guess, based on the disposition strategy? This may be too specific of a question. So you know, feel free to answer in generalities. But... I guess what I'm trying to figure out is in a perfect world, who should be responsible for developing and paying for it? That Because you know that's the question that everybody on the other side is, who's going to pay for it? I love this question. Because first of all, it paints a very clear picture of what shouldn't be happening, where what's happening for many, many years, many decades, and which is not really the case anymore. It shouldn't take three years to roll out the technology. <laughs> okay, with, <laughs> this is a good point. New, so, what, one thing that I have to absolutely mention here, with the new cloud-based technology solutions that are available on the market right now, that are replacing premise-based systems that used to cost you fifteen, twenty thousand dollars per property to buy this license to install it on a piece of hardware that sits in your back office or in your garage, wherever it is that is expensive to maintain, that costs a lot and expensive to 
uh, you have to, you know, spend a lot of money to train people how to use it, to maintain it, to roll it out because of the, all the integration problems. You have to have a person physically on property to hook something up to that server in your back office and whatnot. It's just absolutely not the case anymore. These things shouldn't, this nightmare should not be happening. So cloud-based technology, it's all in the cloud. It's, first of all, much less expensive to uh, for vendors to start a tech company uh, because it's cloud-based. Um, the investment is so much lower. That's why, in many cases, this new SaaS model that resulted from the, uh, the growth and the development of the cloud computing uh, software solutions, it replaces this old model when you had to invest so much to sign up for uh, a technology, a piece of technology, you know, $15,000, $20,000 per property is just no longer the case. Many of them don't even charge installation fees. You just pay hundreds, a few hundreds of dollars a month on an ongoing basis. And because everything is in the cloud, it connects to your PMS system that is hopefully in the cloud if you live in the 21st century, <laughs> exactly, for a portion of our hotels who live in the 21st century, <laughs> who have their PMS systems in the cloud. It all happens behind the scenes in the, in the air. It happens fast. It doesn't take three years. Maybe it takes a few months. But to answer the question of uh, who is paying for this, Normally, owners, unfortunately, are the ones writing the check. That's why um, I, one of my target audiences in the book and in the education that I have been doing with my writing and, and consulting and webinars are the owners. And that segment is also very fragmented. There's just so many of those individual hotel owners that are not necessarily educated. They don't have a degree in hospitality. So we just need to explain them we need to raise awareness with that target audience to explain them how technology can help them be more profitable. And that's essentially what their main goal is, to make money off their assets in majority of cases. Because if they don't make money, nobody else does. Hotel management companies can't exist if, they're, if the owners are not in business. Uh, brands can't exist if the owners are not in business. OTAs can't exist. Nobody else who makes their money out of thin air who don't own assets can't exist if the owners are not profitable. So I've been trying to educate the owner to make sure that they understand what technology can do for them and not be afraid of it. So it sounds like there's two things to take away from this. The first is that maybe hospitality companies should not be developing tech. Maybe we should leave that to tech companies. And then that perhaps the financial component can move from a CapEx expense to a regular recurring expense line in your P&L versus this major outlay all at once. Does that sound accurate? That's a very good point. Uh, to the latter point, yes, it's not a major capital expense anymore. It's just an ongoing fees that SaaS model uh, kind of um, allows us to, it just allows us to be much more flexible with our expenses without having to invest too much from the very beginning, much more profitable business model for everyone involved, for sure. And when it comes to your point to uh, hotel companies not being the best at building software, I would absolutely agree especially if it's an older hotel company or hospitality organization, 
um, and their technology stack is old and they're trying to support it and maintain it. Uh, we see many examples of that in the industry. Uh, logically, a tech company that specializes in building technology is just going to do a much better job at building and maintaining software and make sure, making sure that it's always updated because software goes old really quickly. One year later, it's already old. You always have to, like the companies that I worked at, they released new versions of their software, I kid you not, once a week. Like uh, compare this to the old uh, premise-based solution that was not updated for 10 years. Uh, that's a very different realm right now, very different world. However, I would have to note here that we do have some exceptions where we have like Sonder, for example, a great company. It's called Quasi Hotel Company because half of it is actually a tech company. They have engineers. They have 60, 70, 90 engineers that actually are responsible for building their own software. And they're doing a good job. And they're actually a software company as much as they are a, an ownership group that owns assets and operates their assets, which include hotels and also vacation rental units as well. So we do have some great examples. Citizen M that I also use in my book is one great example. But uh, mostly those are companies that are newer, smaller, and more modern and forward-looking rather than the ones that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years. You mentioned the two brands that you talked to for the book. The Hospitality 2.0 is filled with interviews and just direct quotes from interviews, which I found really interesting. You talked to a couple of brands, tech companies, researchers, consultants, academics, all that stuff. But I noticed that you didn't talk to ownership groups. And I just was curious if that was a deliberate decision or they wouldn't talk to you or what the story was with that. I love that question. It was a definitely a deliberate decision. And the reason for that would be because the main goal for me with the interviewees was to find visionaries or examples, successful examples of companies who we can learn from and um, companies that would provide more knowledge and wisdom in regards to how to move forward and how to see the future in terms of technology adoption. Unfortunately, I couldn't think of any in the branded space that I could use as an example for that, unfortunately. And I do use some of the brands, not me personally, but actually my interviewees use some of the uh, larger brands as examples of bad uh, technology stack, old bad tech stack that is um, outdated and inefficient and causes issues for the franchisees and for, for the owners and operators. Um, and unfortunately, this is the situation that we're in. I'm not saying that this is 100% the case with all of them, but that is the case that um, a lot of brands, and this is very natural because they're very old. By very old, I mean 50, 60, 70, 100 years old. Well, maybe not 100, but decades. And you can imagine that if you are a large company and you started building your technology and your databases 50 years ago, and it's all being premise-based, and it's just sitting there in one big pile and you keep building on top of it for years and years. If you're a three-year-old startup, you already have a lot. If you're a 50-year-old company that has thousands of properties under their umbrella, 
different brands, different types with different, all this data and all the code accumulated over decades, it's very, very hard for them and very expensive for them to upgrade their technology to be up to par with the modern standards. So it's very natural and it's it's their decision whether to invest in it and see this as an investment for their future growth, um, essentially for their survival. Because like I said, if they don't, they're just essentially going to die and be disrupted by others. Uh, or not invest and die. It's their decision. <laughs> well, shifting gears from death a little bit, one of the assertions that you make is that hotels should stop measuring RevPAR exclusively and instead focus on profit as the standard of success. Owners have been talking about this since the beginning of time. And I think Calibri Labs was one of the first, maybe hot stats, mm-hmm. the companies that centered profit instead of top line in their analyses. Can you talk about why it's risky to just focus on top line revenue rather than profit? Absolutely. That's one of my favorite subjects. And that's the reason why I developed Adjusted RevPAR Index in 2014. Um, And the article that I published has been read by, I don't know, maybe 100,000 people by now. So it's been relatively widely adopted by now. Um, The main reason is that the top line room revenue, which is reflected in RevPAR as a metric, is just not correlated to bottom line profit. This is just the reality. These are just numbers. This is math, not very simple math, but it's math. There is no direct correlation between the two. So if you're growing ref par, you're not necessarily growing your bottom line. And um, the thing is that uh, many things in our industry, just it just happened this way because how the industry has been evolved, evolving and specifically the revenue management discipline has been evolving. Many things are just based off of ref par including our hotel management agreements with you know with management companies including the brand agreements including you know the commission that you pay to OTAs incentive plans on property yes, exactly. i mean the individuals are yep. optimizing for something that may or may not be absolutely what they should be optimizing for absolutely counterproductive uh, and the owners are not even aware about it uh, of it so again it comes to the question of educating the owner that um, they're probably thinking that it's the same thing that if you grow ref par you automatically by default grow profit but no it's just not the case and there have been studies written by scientists by hospitality professors on the subject that confirm with numbers yes no that like in this specific situation they actually go in opposite direction like literally in opposite direction so in many cases if you're a hotel management company your goal is to grow ref par sometimes uh, hurting the bottom line and again, the owners, because they're probably the least educated group in our world, they just don't understand these things. Another reason why we haven't really been doing it, because again, technology hasn't been, we haven't adopted our technology to allow for easy management of bottom line profits for a hospitality organization, for a hotel property, um, because of the data flows are just not there the bottom line data, the cost structures and everything. We know how to transmit ref par back and forth between your PMS, between your CRS, SCR gets this data. However, it just gets so much more complex when we try to report on our cost structure and our bottom line profits. Though SCR is actually, they just recently released their new product 
and they're moving in that direction as well. And I'm really I'm happy to see that because that's going to allow more owners and managers to compare their performance and benchmark against performance of other properties from the standpoint of the bottom line, not just the top line revenue and occupancy. So we see definitely a positive trend in the right direction in this in this um, aspect from the standpoint of profit optimization, but there's still a lot that we need to do with technology, with education and raising awareness and benchmarking solutions and whatnot. Hospitality uses a few different three-legged stool analogies. So there's the one we already talked about, which is the three-legged stool of brand, owner, management company. But then there's this other one, and this has come up on my show so many times. It's attributed to Mr. Marriott. And it's the idea that if you take care of associates, they take care of the guests, and the bottom line takes care of itself. Can you think about or talk a little bit about how tech innovation and a shift from focusing on the top line to the bottom line can serve that role of helping to take care of associates. Absolutely. So technology takes care of so many things or technology can help us be just so much more productive and efficient on every level that you just mentioned. Taking care of the associates on the property or in the organization there's so many examples of these wonderful solutions that allow these people to be more efficient and happier in their positions. And for, like chatbots, for example, they replace this first layer of human intervention with a customer uh, where you know there's generic questions at the answer. Amazon is a great example that he implemented AI chatbots where you the customers get their answers immediately and you only connect to a human. You only need this human intervention when there is a question that is kind of more in-depth, right? So if you're a front desk person, if you're responsible for answering, answering the phone on the, all the time and you can't really, you don't have enough time to concentrate on on your guests, you know, and catering to your customers for this in-person interaction because you always have to answer these questions on the phone or online. Now, when technology is involved, you are freed up, you know, this big portion of those questions um, is answered automatically by an AI software. You're freed up to interact with your customers and you just much less, it's much less chaotic environment for you. You're much less overwhelmed with your job because a portion of it, the boring portion that you have to repeat, what is your direction? How do I get to your hotel? Turn right on 6th Avenue. I remember this clearly. I had to answer this 20 times every day. I hated it. <laughs> Can't you just look it up, please? So we can make chatbots answer this and then not frustrate our employees uh, and just have them be, you know, have more time on more creative and more strategic and more, more high level and more interesting things. So just one of the examples how we can take care of our associates. And then technology takes care of the guests as well. It just improves customer satisfaction tremendously. There have been so many examples, so many studies on being able to customize our offers to our customers, to their needs based on what their preferences are, based on what we know about them, based on what the what, on the data that we gather about them. Answer their questions immediately instead of them having to wait for someone to call them back. And then technology takes care of the bottom line, just we like we discussed, based on all of the above, plus being able to measure the right thing from the bottom line profit standpoint versus just the top line, line revenue. 
So it actually is proliferated on every level that you mentioned, and it can help us absolutely help us with all of those things. Going down. Ira Voke and I had so much to talk about, and her book, Hospitality 2.0, is filled with so many different topics that the rest of our conversation is going to run next week as episode 33. You'll have to wait until then for Ira's loading dock story. So in the meantime, I thought I'd tell you one of mine. When I was recording loading dock stories at Hunter a couple of weeks ago, people told a lot of stories about walking guests, like the hotel being oversold and they had to walk people And it reminded me of the time that I had to walk an entire group. This was the very first hotel that I was the director of sales and marketing at. Everybody on my team was significantly older than me. And I think that they could probably sense the fear and terror behind my eyes because they definitely tried to get away with a lot of shenanigans. One such thing was the double booking of two groups that fully sold the hotel out when we did not have a director of revenue management. So in other words, we didn't have anybody who was kind of minding the store or minding our availability. And we ended up overselling the hotel by a significant number of rooms. In the meantime, this salesperson was coincidentally out of the country on the dates that these two groups were arriving. So gosh, unfortunately, she wasn't able to help Because I didn't know any better, I felt like the buck had to stop with me. And so I said that I would stay and walk the guests, but I got really lucky. Here's why. One of the groups was maybe a garden variety corporate group. I can't really remember. But the other group was a silent meditation retreat. And so what that meant was as soon as the participants got off their airplanes and got onto the transportation that would bring them to the hotel, they weren't allowed to talk. And they were all followers of a specific guru who was also in attendance. So this was a very big deal that they were taking really seriously. And so because of that, they were the people that we chose to walk because we knew that they wouldn't be able to yell at us because they were on a silent meditation retreat. I got so lucky. And from then on out, I always volunteered to walk people because I thought it was way easier than it was. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening today. You can find the show notes from today's episode at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 32. And don't forget part two with Iravoke is coming up next week. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. 
Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.